All right, well, good morning. Thank you. Uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, which I recommend if you bring those to chapel, uh, John chapter 1, I'm going to float around a bunch, but uh, we are going to land there at some point, I promise. All right. Well, let's pray. Father, we pause before we speak to you, for you are God. How often do I jump into a list of what I want you to do rather than waiting and listening to what you might actually want to say? God, I thank you that you hear us. And I thank you that you pray on our behalf, Holy Spirit, with groans that we don't even know about. And we don't know how to pray. And so you pray on our behalf. But God, what I do ask is that you would reveal truth to us. That God, you would convey truth, show it, reveal it. Show us the reliability of your word. God, I thank you for truth. I thank you that it's for our good. And so God, I have this time. Keep my, agen- my agendas and my opinions to myself. May only your truth come forth. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone here agrees, says, amen. One of my favorite passages, and like I said, we'll get to John chapter 1, it was John chapter 2, and Jesus is invited to a wedding, and this is where the first miracle that Jesus does is recorded, and Jesus is there, and his mom's there, and it's, it's likely the reason that Mary knows what's going on is because she's kind of like the person behind the scenes who's making sure the reception runs the way that it's supposed to, and, and there's this problem that comes up, and there's no more wine. All the wine ran out. And people are like, what? It says that the, the wine ran out? What's Jesus going to do? And so Mary hears about it. And here's why this is such a big deal. Now, in that day, weddings lasted for days. I mean, celebrations. Like the, uh, the reception wasn't just an afternoon or an evening. It was days long. But for that family, because they ran out of wine, they couldn't provide for their, for their friends and the people that were there. And so therefore, it was a huge shame on the family. And so Mary comes running up to Jesus and Jesus and it looks at her and says, Jesus, they don't even wear wine. And if you've ever read that passage, have you ever wondered why go to Jesus? I mean, his job, he was a, he was a carpenter. But you go to Jesus, why? And it's not like he grew up doing miracles. And it was, unless, unless he had like some moonshine business on the side where he's squishing grapes, it, it doesn't make any sense why you go to him. And he actually, he actually looks at his mom and he says, woman? I'll be honest, if I ever looked at my mom growing up and called her woman in front of my dad, guys, my dad growing up was a six foot four, 280 pound cop. <laughs> if I ever looked and said, woman, I would die right then. <laughs> There's no way. Now, it's a little different today than it was, and this is normal. This was like a term of endearment. It wasn't a big deal. She says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My time hasn't come yet. And then she looks at the servants who are with them, and this is all she does. She just looks at them and says, do whatever he says, and then walks away. Isn't it weird? She says, hey, there's no more wine. It's almost like he says, this isn't, my, this isn't my thing. What does this have to do with me? She hears that, 
and then looks at these random guys who are the servants and says, just do whatever he says, and then walks away. Guys, how many of you have ever been volunteered by your mom? Jesus gets you. He understands it. And so then Jesus says, I want you to fill up these six jars, <laughs> it's 180 gallons worth of water, water to the brim. But guys, I think some of the best advice came what she said right there. Just do whatever he says. If I could tell you to do one thing, just do whatever Jesus says. Just do whatever he says. But how do we know what Jesus is saying? How do we know what he wants? This big old fatty book. This book. And I know for some, you said, go, Brian, I've tried it. How many of you ever got, like, you've left camp and you get home and you're like, I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to read the whole thing today. I'm going to go through the whole thing. Okay, maybe not in a day. But it's like, this year I'm going to read the whole Bible. And you start in Genesis, and there's some fun parts, and then there's some whacked out parts, kind of reading some people, and they're just as jacked up back then as we are now. And then you get to Leviticus. Right? And you read, and you're going through it, and I'm like, God, what was the point of this? There's a whole lot of blood being spilled, and this kind of offering for this and this, and then there's these weird rules of cleansing, and and I sit there and go, and by the time you get to Leviticus, she's just done. She made it about two months. So what is this book? I received this email story of a little girl named Tavani from Indonesia. About a month ago, I got this in my inbox. And she's 11. And, she's, and it, the, the story said that for five years, she had been praying for this one thing. For five years, she had prayed for one thing. You know what that one thing was? Her own Bible. That means from the age of six, all she wanted, think about it. When you were six, what did you want? Did you say, I want my own Bible? Probably not. Maybe for some. But for her, and then for five years to keep praying, God, would you let me have my own Bible? Would you let me have my own Bible? And then to see her in this picture with her own Bible. And just smiling like crazy. And then it hit her. She says, now I pray about everything because God answered this request and I know he'll answer more. Eleven. I thought, what an empowerful thing that God did. You said, why did he do it the first time? Think about it. Maybe God doesn't give us what we want right when we want it because he has something greater he's doing in the process. Like, we want it now, right? We're such a, we're such a now culture. You can binge watch any show. Everything is immediate. The worst thing to do is have to what? Wait. You ever hit up Starbucks and you order, and then the person behind you orders, and you're waiting, and then they do that one thing that you just feel is persecution beyond all persecution. They call the name behind you before yours, and you're sitting there going, God, give me strength. Give me strength. And you can't show that you're impatient because you've got a cross on somewhere, and they're going to know you're jacked up whack job. And then the next person behind gets like, oh, we don't like to wait. It's just not the norm. But what if God said, they're going, I don't wear a watch, and I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not connected to your Google calendar. What if when we pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done, we actually meant it, and he, take, and he takes that prayer seriously. His timetable, not ours. What if God did greater work in five years by not giving her that at that moment? So when she did get it, she, she learned, if God showed me this and did this for me, I know that I can pray about anything. And then I watched this, uh, watched this pastor share. It's a video from 2010. Um, he was from the States. He went over to China 
where he said he got to teach 22 Christian leaders. So he travels from the States and goes to China. These 22 Christian leaders, think about it, they traveled 13 hours on a train to get to a 700-square-foot apartment to be taught the Bible. By train, 13 hours on a train to get to a 700-square-foot apartment so that they could just learn more about the Bible. And so then he asked them, so out of you 22 people, how many, how many Christians are you responsible for? And so they started doing the math, and they said, we have oversight over 20 million followers of Jesus. 22 youth pastors. we got to pull back and stop saying, how many kids you got coming to your youth group? Because it's not 20 million. It doesn't matter. Here's the other part that hit me. In order to get to this apartment and not show the authorities what's going on, they had to travel by elevator two by two at different times. Because it was, it was known that there's this Christian gathering that wasn't sanctioned by the state, and it would be shut down and considered illegal. So two by two, they're going by elevator so they can cram into this 700-square-foot apartment. There's no air conditioning. We're like, I get that. Guys, can you imagine me? <laughs> okay, China is humid as all get out. I sweat. I had this sweat bed going on last night. Did you see it? Like some of you guys sitting there going, is he going to die? No, that's normal. No joke, guys, I sweat peeling oranges. It doesn't matter. It does, like, I could just exhale and it just comes out. So don't, I'm hoping it wasn't a distraction because it's probably going to happen again. But I can't imagine 700 square foot apartment, 22 people, no air conditioning, and humid. Guys, I would melt. And they show up and they're sitting on hardwood floor. And he taught the Bible. He, all he did was teach the Bible from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. All day. And they just sat there and they took it all in. He then asked them, hey, what would happen if we got caught right now? And they told him, well, you would be deported in 24 hours, and we would probably go to prison. And he said, well, how many of you have been to prison because you love Jesus? And out of the 22 people, you know how many people raised their hands? 18. 18 of those 22 Christian leaders raised their hands saying, we have gone to prison because we love Jesus. So then he had 15 Bibles, and he starts to pass them all out because not all of them had one. And then he says, hey, I want you to turn to 2 Peter, and there's this woman sitting there, and when she she heard him say that, she took her Bible and closed it and handed it to somebody else who had it, who who didn't have one. So at a break, he walks up and says, hey, I noticed that you handed off your Bible. Can I ask you why? She said, well, you said turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, and I already memorized that. He goes, how'd you memorize it? Where Where did you memorize it? I memorized it in prison. See, what would happen when people would come and visit me, they would write scripture on the pieces of paper. And they would slide it to me, like they'd sneak it to me, and I knew that if I got caught, when they find it, they're going to throw it away. So I just read it and read it and read it until I memorized it, and then when they took it, they took the piece of paper, but they couldn't take the Word of God. Guys, I listen to that story, and I go, what have we done? Like, what have we done with the Bible? I'm only speaking to followers of Jesus right now. What have we done with it? It's just another book on our shelf, right? And it's collecting dust. And maybe it's not even a book on the shelf, it's just on the app. At the end of this three days that the pastor was with these people, the people looked and said, could you pray for us? Because he asked, hey, what what could I pray for you before I go? How can I pray for you when I get home? He said, can you pray for us? We hear that you guys can gather. You Christians can gather whenever you want. And you can worship whenever you want. Could you pray that we'd become more like you? 
You know what this pastor told them? He said, I won't pray for that. And they had this look. Can you, it sounds a little rude, right? He says, you know what? You guys traveled 13 hours by train to get here. And we have people back home, if they have to drive in an air-conditioned car further than 45 minutes, they won't come back. And then you got here, and we're in this small little non-air-conditioned room. And it's hot. And if people get to your worship service and they're not comfortable, they won't come back. And you guys sat on hardwood floors for, from 8 to 5. You sat on hardwood floors all day long. And we have people that if the seats aren't comfortable enough, they won't come back. He said, I won't pray for you to become like us. What I'm going to pray is that we become like you. Guys, they wanted the word. The Bible says this about itself in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, or for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And some would say, well, that's the Bible speaking for itself, but it doesn't mean that it's reliable. It doesn't mean that it's true. Guys, there's no other book in all of human history that is like the Bible. None. Guys, just the authorship. Do you realize that this book was written over a 1,500-year span? 40 different authors, three different languages, three different continents, and yet it's a cohesive whole. It doesn't contradict itself. You say, well, what's so impressive about that? Guys, if I just drove from here to Big Bear, and I walked just the main little, little small town, I just walked and I asked 100 people, since it's a hot topic right now, I asked 100 people their opinion on abortion. Do you think that all 100 people on the same day, in the same place, would agree? Absolutely not. And the authors are from different lives, lifestyles. I mean, you have, you have king, a king who's writing scripture. You got this used-to-be pharisaical legalist writing scripture. You have servants writing scripture. You have this tax collector who came to Christ writing scripture. And yet they all agree. The Bible is a cohesive whole from cover to cover. And then you start looking at archaeology, guys. You realize that they've never found anything in archaeology to disprove the Bible. They haven't found everything. But they've never found anything to disprove the claims of the Bible. They actually use the Bible as a roadmap. And historically, it's completely accurate. And so when you start looking at that, you go, okay, maybe there's a little bit something to that. And then you get to prophecies. Guys, there are over 300 messianic prophecies. What's a messianic prophecy? A messianic prophecy is a prophecy about Jesus' coming before he shows up. Does that make sense? So there's over 300 of them. Let me just read some of them. Ready? Here we go. Prophecies about Jesus. Born of a virgin. Born in Bethlehem. Great persons would come to adore him. There would be the killing of children in Bethlehem. He would be called out of Egypt. He would be preceded by a forerunner. He'd be a prophet like Moses. He'd be entering into his public ministry in Galilee. He would live in poverty and meekness, tenderness, and compassion. He would be full of zeal, preaching with parables, working miracles. He would triumphantly enter into Jerusalem. He would be rejected by his own Jewish brethren. Jews and Gentiles would combine against him. He'd be betrayed by a friend. He'd be accused by false witnesses. He'd be sold for 30 pieces of silver. His betrayer would kill himself. His disciples would desert him, would die under suffering, but would be, I'm sorry, but would be silent. His appearance would be marred. He would be spit upon. He'd be scourged. His hands and feet would be nailed to the cross. He'd be forsaken by God. He would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He'd be mocked. 
His friends would stand far off. Gall and vinegar would be offered to him. His garments would be parted and gambled for. He'd be numbered among the transgressors. He would intercede for his murderers. Not one, of his, not one bone in his body would be broken. He'd be pierced long before crucifixion would ever be invented. His heart would be broken. His side would be pierced. Darkness would cover the land. He'd be buried in a rich man's tomb. His flesh would not see corruption. He'd be raised from the dead. He'd ascend back to the right hand of the Father. All of this hundreds of years before Jesus even showed up. And this isn't even all 300 plus of them. So there's this math prof who looked at the, the, the messianic prophecies and they counted them. And so he took his class through this assignment and said, okay, what's the probability that one person would come and fulfill just eight, not all 300 plus, but just eight of the messianic prophecies? What they came up with was this. The probability that one person would come and fulfill just eight of these messianic prophecies is one in 10 to the 17th power. Guys, 10 to the 17th power, you know how much that is? I think that's the national debt, but I, I don't know what it means, but it's like a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. One in 10 to the 17th power. Guys, if you had 10 to the 17th power in silver dollars, it'd fill the state of Texas two feet deep. The whole state would be covered in silver dollars by two feet. The same probability that one person comes and fulfills just eight is the same probability that if I took one person, what's your name? Garrett. Garrett and I, we're flying to Texas. You and the youth group, human's going to pay for us. Okay, so we're all flying to Texas. And then I take Garrett and I say, hey, we're going to blindfold you. And I mark one of those silver dollars with a red X. And then I throw it in the state of Texas. Somehow we mix the whole state up. I say, Garrett, you're blindfolded. You got one shot. If you can find the one, you can find the one with the X on the first shot, you get all of it. The same probability that he would find it on the first try is the same probability one person would come and fulfill just eight messianic prophecies, and Jesus fulfilled them all. And so when people say, ah, there's no evidence to it, it's called lazy. Friends, there is plenty of evidence that points to the reliability of the scriptures. Why do we have such a hard time with the Bible? Because the Bible is not afraid to confront us and tell us, hey, you're sinners in need of a savior. You're rebellious against the holy God and you need to repent and turn to Christ. And so we jump here in John chapter 1 and realize that from the last writing of the last book in the Old Testament to the New Testament, there's a 400-year gap where God has gone silent. No prophets are speaking, no angelic visions, nothing. It's completely quiet. And so we jump here in verse 23 in John chapter 1. And John the Baptist said this because he was asked the question, hey, are you the one that was supposed to come? Are you, are you the one that's like, are you the Messiah? See, what they were doing is they were looking at the scriptures going, okay, are you it? Because we read in the Bible that there's a Messiah supposed to come. Are you it? Are you the Messiah? What they were looking for was what? Hope. But they were looking for it in the scriptures. And this was his response. He says, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord. But then he says, as the prophet Isaiah said. So he goes back to what does the Bible say? So we pick up here in verse 35, chapter 1. The next day, again, Jesus was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. Guys, why would he say that? Remember I made fun of Leviticus? Let's be honest, it's a hard book. But once you start reading the book of Leviticus under this umbrella, God is holy. It changes everything. When you start reading, say, this is what God requires for us to be right with him. And then you start reading Hebrews and it says, hey, it's impossible for the blood of 
bulls and goats to bring forgiveness. And you go, okay, so all of these sacrifices mentioned in the Old Testament are pointing us to Jesus who's coming. So here comes Jesus walking, and John the Baptist, who is his cousin, looks and says, behold the Lamb of God, the sacrifice necessary, all according to what the Bible says. The two disciples heard him say this. They followed Jesus, and Jesus turned and saw them following. And he said to them, what are you seeking? And friends, I highlighted in my Bible, and I think I want to ask you the same question, or the same question, friends, what are you seeking? I think it's just a, it's, I think it's an interesting way to, to, to phrase the question. It's not like, hey, what do you want? It's, but what are you seeking? Like, what is your life about? Are you still trying to get the applause and the accolades of whoever or whomever or how many people you want to make sure see you and notice you? Are you trying to make sure that everyone's noticing you? Guys, i got to be honest. It's exhausting to live for the applause of the masses. Oh, but there's freedom and peace to strive to live for the applause of heaven. To live for the audience of one? Oh, that's beautiful. And to know what that one thinks of us? Oh, it's life-giving. What are you seeking? I think maybe at some point, maybe just sit along. Sit, for those who like to journal, write that down in your journal and answer the question, what am I seeking after? What am I really want? Keep going. And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th the hour. One of the two who heard, I'm sorry, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. Friends, I love that. Real quick side note. I'll probably bring this up the last time too, but do you notice the first thing that Andrew did was to go find his brother to tell him we found Jesus, we found the Messiah. The one we've been waiting for, we found him. The first one he went to was his brother. And for some of you, you're in this home and you feel like you're the only follower of Jesus, and maybe you are. You're sitting there going, is anything changing? And what if God's sitting there going, your address is your zip code. I'm just not, your address is your mission field. It's in your zip code. I have this line that I use with our church community. Hey, your mission field starts in your zip code. Followers of Jesus, we need to stop thinking that mission trips are across, are across in a different country and across the Atlantic. Guys, why are churches in other countries sending Christians to the United States to do missionary work, to spread the gospel when we have, quote, unquote, religious freedom? It is blowing my mind. Why is this happening? For some of you, your mission field is right in your home. The first thing that Andrew did was to go tell his brother, Simon, hey, we found the Messiah. Verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Guys, why is that so important? Because Jesus knew who he was, but Jesus knew who he would become. He says, you are Simon, but you will be Cephas, which means rock. Can you imagine Andrew standing over here going, rock? Like, my brother's like a doodle. Like, he just, he just bends on everything. Like, you, you push him too hard, he'll back off, but he's super passionate. You're, you're, you really think he's going to become rock? And yet, when you see, when you read the historical accounts of how Peter died, 
that he was crucified because he loved Jesus, but because he didn't find himself to be worthy to die the same way that Jesus died, he requested to be hung upside down. Do you think that, he, do you think that Jesus was right when he said, you are this, but you will become that? And how great to know he's like, hey, I know who you are. Like, I think he speaks to all of us. I know who you are, but I know who I will make you to become. He knows what he's doing, friends. He knows all of it. He knows why he's doing things and why he's not doing certain things. But he's making you into who he wants you to become. And friends, don't ever settle for anything but God's plan because it's best. The Bible goes on, continues, verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was with us from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew, I'm sorry, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Here's why I think that verse is so important. It's like, we found the one that Moses talked about and the prophets talked about. In other words, we found the one that the scriptures have been telling us is supposed to come. And you know who it is? Jesus. Who? Jesus, you know what, it, would be, it wouldn't really make a lot of difference because there's a lot of people named Jesus back in the day. It's like, Jesus, where is he from? Nazareth. Nazareth? Guys, Nazareth was 40 square acres. That's as big as Nazareth was. It's a podunk little town, little village. Jesus of Nazareth, he is the one. And then you look at the response. Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Oh, that's trash talk. Just throw down. Can anything good come from that little podunk town? And Philip just said, come and see. Just come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Oh, dang. Nathanael just got done saying, Anything good come from Nazareth? And Jesus saw him before he said that and probably while he said that. Now do you see why Nathaniel then all of a sudden says, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the, king of the Jew, or you're the king of Israel. That impressed him so much, but it all started with Philip going, hey, Nathaniel, we found him. The one that the scriptures talk about, he showed up. Like, he's here. They were looking to the Bible for hope. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the, the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Guys, what, bio, what book is like the Bible? Because I can't think of a book on the planet that's been, quote, unquote, persecuted as much as the Bible. Why are so many people against the Bible? Why do you have? I mean, when Megan in the videos is talking about how there's this persecution against Christians when they went the Bible, when you have Roman emperors saying, hey, no Bibles, and if you're caught with one, we'll kill you. I mean, what is it about the Bible that is what? So terrifying to those who have power. Could it be that the Bible is intimidated by no one? Because it comes from God who's intimidated by no one. Is it possible that it's because it's reliable and true? Guys, there's no other book on the planet that has impacted the planet like the Bible. Some would say, yeah, but you know how many bad things have come from it? Because people have read it, like, oh, bad things have happened. Guys, did it come because it's, because it's what it says or because people take it and they twist it and do things that God never wanted them to do? 
Guys, do you realize that orphanages have started? Why? Because early followers of Jesus took seriously the things that Jesus taught. The concept of nursing came because of a, a little Christian woman named Florence Nightingale who loved Jesus and just simply wanted to nurse people back to health, looking at what does the Bible say about caring for those in need. I read once, and I can't remember who wrote it, even this idea of people that read in Braille. You know what Braille is? For those that can't see, they read using the little bumps on the piece of paper. They're Christians. The Ivy League school started out as what? Christian training schools to send out pastors and Christian workers into the, into the states or into their cities to make an impact for the community. Guys, nations have been impacted. Societies and cultures have been impacted by this book for the last couple thousand years. It is like no other book on the planet. And it points to this God that we talked about last night. It just kind of makes us go, I don't know how to approach that God. And then you read, when we looked at it at the end, that God that we don't know how to approach, he says, just come to me. Maybe for some, this is what you need to hear. Maybe there's a youth pastor or a youth leader or a student that needs to hear this. When Jesus just says this, come to me, all of you who are heavy or weary and heavy laden. And watch it. I will give you rest. Maybe that's what you need to hear today. Youth workers and youth leaders, I just want to encourage you. All the demands that are on you. And if you come from a church where they're saying, you need to have this percentage of growth or else. Guys, that is not biblical. How can I then say, this is what God's going to do when God does what he wants when he wants to do it? Youth pastors, just care for your kids. You love your people. That's a shepherd. Where do you get that? From the Bible. The Bible frees us. The Bible speaks to us. God speaks to us through it. God wrote this book. Guys, it's from the Bible that we learn that Jesus is creator. That in the beginning, God already was there. That in the beginning, to create everything, God just simply said, let there be. And creation became reality. Guys, it's in the Bible that we learn what sin is. Guys, do you realize that the first five, the first five books of the Bible, is called the law. You know what the purpose of that part is? It's to show us how sinful we are. You say, there's nothing good in that. I mean, there's the Bible just saying, hey, you're not good enough. Guys, you know how freeing it is to know that I suck? Oh, it's awesome. That means, hey, let me just encourage you. You suck. We all suck. It's awesome. I don't have to impress you. You don't have to impress me. I know before God, I am a sinner. And I'm not a sinner because it wasn't my fault. I'm a victim of sin. No, I brought sin to the party because I'm the sinner. I was conceived into sin, rebellious against God. This is what the Bible teaches. The Bible shows, shows us a God who chose a people, the lowest, the lowliest people, small in number, small in power, and he created a nation because he wanted them. The Bible teaches us that. Guys, it's the Bible that teaches me. Yes, I'm a sinner, but it's the Bible that teaches me that God, what, he so loved the world. Man, we know that verse. That's at football games. There's a sign, person just holding it. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The Bible teaches me that. The Bible teaches me that the word who is God became flesh and dwelt among us. The Bible teaches me that. 
What do I get from that? God wanted us so much that he became like us. It's the Bible that teaches me that Jesus learned obedience through suffering. That he suffered the same things we suffered. Guys, you ever wonder why? You, the last time that you see Jesus' dad on earth mentioned, Joseph, is when he's 12. And then when he starts his ministry at 30, Joseph is never mentioned again. You ever wonder why? I'm convinced he's died in that time. Do you realize that Jesus gets it? For those of you who've lost a parent, Jesus understands. He gets it. He understands how painful. He watched his mama and how she had to face that tragedy. He understands the hurt and the pain of funerals. He knows what it's like. It's the Bible that shows me a Jesus who shows up to one of the funerals of his friends that he knew he was going to bring back from the dead, and yet he still cried. He wept. He wept almost uncontrollably. Why? Because everyone else hurt. It's the Bible that paints this picture of Jesus being so compassionate and tender and loving and yet bold, not afraid of anything or anyone. The only thing that Jesus was terrified of was the wrath of God that would come when he took the cross. Guys, it's the Bible that shows me a Jesus who confronts sin. He's not afraid to confront us in our sin, but it's, it's the Bible that teaches me that Jesus says, but I am the way, the truth, and the life, that you can come to the Father, but it's only through me. Guys, it's the Bible that tells me that before Jesus, I was dead in my sins. Dead in my sin means that I'm not looking for anything. I'm not looking for a way out. I'm done. I'm dead. Dead things don't search for anything. Dead things don't look for anything. I was dead in my trespasses. But then the Bible, it's in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. It talks about being dead in your sin. And then to verse 4, the, the, first, the, first two, I'm sorry, the first two words of verse 4 says this, but God. This is my plight. This is my problem. But God. And talks about, hey, we are saved by grace through faith. And this faith, not of yourselves, that faith is the gift of God, not by works so no one can boast. It's the Bible that continues to go on from verse 9 to verse 10, saying we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. It's the Bible that says it's impossible for me to do enough good things before God to make myself uh, where I can make myself approach him, that I can be acceptable before him. It's the Bible that teaches me that. But it's the Bible that says that God took care of everything that I could be restored into relationship with him. It's the Bible that conveys that God is holy and perfect and just and loving and wonderful and compassionate and kind and forgiving and merciful and gracious. It's the Bible that teaches us all these things. And it's the Bible, one of my favorite songs we have, I think it's the second one, Who Am I? It's the Bible that teaches me that, yes, I was a sinner before I surrendered to Christ, but when I gave, when I surrendered myself to Jesus, I became a new creation. That, the, that God does not see me as sinner. He sees me as son. He sees me as saint. The Bible teaches that when God looks upon me because I belong to Jesus, the Bible calls it in Christ. The way that he sees me says, you are as holy as the Jesus that you are in. He sees me as if I'm as holy as Jesus. And friends, it's the Bible that says, Jesus is coming back one day. See, the first time he came pretty quiet. 
Guys, it's the Bible that says this. Guys, think about it. This changed everything. This book changes everything, and it is truth, and it points to Jesus. And you have to decide, what will you do with Jesus? Can I pray for you? Let me pray. Father, thank you that you took 1,500 years to pen this book for us, that we could know you better. God, I pray that as we dive into your word, not so we would know more information, but that we would know you better. God, please, please, God, change lives. Thank you. Thank you, God, that you will. I thank you that your word doesn't return void, but accomplishes everything that you want to accomplish when you send it out. God, thank you. Thank you for revealing who you are, our plight, your remedy. Thank you for loving us enough to share truth with us that we can, we can go to you and spend time with you in it whenever we want. We thank you for how you speak to us through it. God, I pray your blessing over the rest of this day for these, for these students and uh, staff members. God, thank you so much for letting us be here. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name and everyone who agrees says.